You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. I completed verses 12 and 13. We'll pick up there and resume our study in verse 14 of chapter 2 of Philippians. But let's uh, begin, if you would join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you this day for the privilege of being able to gather together collectively as your children. And Father, we do ask this morning that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit in your word as we examine your word once again. We pray that you would not only illuminate your word by your Holy Spirit, but also that you would grant us the grace to be obedient to your word as we receive these vital truths from your word. We ask, Father, that you would grant us the understanding and the ability to apply these truths to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, we looked at Philippians 2, 12 and 13 last time we were in the passage, and Paul was giving instruction to the Philippians as to not to work up their salvation or to work at their salvation, but to work out their salvation. So the natural question for any Christian would be, what are we supposed to be doing? Paul's giving them instruction and he's saying, you're now Christians by God's grace. He's called you. He's also commanded you to work out your salvation. But then he's also instructed them as to where the power comes from. And as we saw in verse 13, Paul said, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we know that the power and the will of God works in us to do his will. And now Paul addresses the issue of attitude. <clears throat> so as God desires a believer to reflect the attitude of righteousness and obedience, he wants us to do so without grumbling and disputing. Let's look at verse 14. Now, I know there's no one here that has issues with this particular form of attitude. I especially have been convicted. Now, you can't look <clears throat> introspectively too much without being convicted by this verse. Paul says this, do all things without <clears throat> grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless 
and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. God desires that a believer reflect the attitude of righteousness and obedience without grumbling or disputing. So the conduct should reflect a manner worthy of the gospel. Remember back in verse 127, Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Everything we do reflects that of Christ in us. So Paul here recognized that there was not only the opportunity for conflict, but there was also known conflict within the body. So he's addressing their attitudes. The biblical command to believers is not to complain. Also in James 5.9, there's an evidence that the church is not immune to discontent. We'll look at James a little bit later in our study this morning. The church today is filled with people who are discontented. Now, I say the church, and I use that term, uh, there's a lot of those who attend uh, those places called churches, which are seeker-sensitive that perhaps are not regenerate that try to seek to please the people's sought needs. We're not talking about that. We're addressing here believers, those whom God has regenerated. Now, as we look at this, we recognize that Paul's foremost concern here is for these children of God in Philippi. He loved them. His concern was that they reflect Christ's love to one another and to the world of darkness around them. But as we consider this attitude of discontent, we don't have to look too far in Scripture to recognize that's reflected throughout all the Old as well as the New Testament. The first being created. Adam, he was the first complainer. He, after he disobeyed God, who did he blame? Eve. It was the woman whom you gave me. She gave me the tree and I ate. She gave me of the tree and I ate. Instead of blaming himself, he blamed God. Then Cain, the firstborn, complained bitterly to God for his punishment for murdering his brother. As we look throughout Scripture, 
We see in Exodus, in chapter 18, or chapters 13 and 14, Moses complained because the they weren't delivered from the Pharaoh quickly enough. And yet God delivered them miraculously. He parted the seas and delivered them through dry land. And then three days later, they're in the wilderness and they complained. All of Israel started groaning and complaining. And the Lord graciously answered them and made the water. They had come to a well and the waters were bitter. And in <clears throat> Exodus, he says this, there were 12 springs of water. 70 date palms, and they camped there beside the waters. Shortly after, there was complaining because there was supposedly a lack of food. So then they yearned to go back to Egypt where they could have herbs and all sorts of foods that they yearned for. God had delivered them from the Pharaoh, from all the torturous rigors that they went through, and they were complaining. So, of course, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And God took them and had delivered them. And immediately, they started complaining. But really, are we any different? We have been delivered. Those who are truly regenerate in Christ. From eternal damnation. We have Christ's righteousness. We have eternal life in Christ. We've been delivered from eternal punishment. And yet, do we sometimes murmur and grumble? This is the attitude that Paul is addressing. After Caleb and Joshua and other men came from spying out the land of Canaan, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome them. Except for Caleb and Joshua, however, the other spies were afraid and faithless. And they, were too, they said they were too strong and they will overcome us. Because of those faithless men complaining and being afraid, all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in the wilderness. That was back in Numbers 14. Then they grumbled against God, saying, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones, will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Then they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. So this is in Numbers chapter 14. When we read the Psalms, Psalm 78, verses 40 and 41, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Psalm 106, verses 24, 25. They despised the pleasant land 
They didn't believe in his word, but they grumbled in their tent. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. In Jude, Jude warned the apostles who were grumblers, finding fault, <clears throat> apostates, I'm sorry, grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts, who speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Every complaint of a believer is a complaint against God. Stop and think about that. Whenever we are grumbling or complaining, ultimately, it goes against our Lord. We may be complaining about traffic. We may complain about politicians. We may be complaining about numerous things. But ultimately, we complain against a sovereign God who is sovereign over all things. <clears throat> all things in this part of the verse refers back to verses 12 and 13, which is the attitude where to work out our salvation, as I mentioned earlier. We're to work out our salvation without grumbling or complaining. Now, grumbling is a word that uh, has the natural guttural sound of muttering. Have you ever heard somebody muttering or uttering a guttural sound when they complain? Um, I won't try to imitate it because I wouldn't be able to finish today's lesson. But as we think of that, it comes from deep within us. It is a groaning and a murmuring. And that's what Paul is referring to here. <clears throat> a related verb here <clears throat> is used <clears throat> of the resentful laborers who grumbled at the landowner <clears throat> for being paid the same as those who worked one hour in Matthew 20, verse 11. Paul uses this term to describe the Israelite in the wilderness who grumbled and were destroyed by the destroyer. <clears throat> that was in 1 Corinthians 10.10, 10, as Cornell has been taking us through Corinthians. Complaining or disputing has the basic meaning of inner reasoning, but more specifically, it means questioning, questioning, doubting, or disputing the truth. In Romans 14.1, it says the word is used to pass judgment on another believer's opinion. The word is used in Timothy, 1 Timothy uh, 2.8, is rendered dissension. Grumbling is essentially emotional, disputing, or complaining. Essentially, it's intellectual. A person who continues to murmur and grumble against God will eventually argue and dispute with God. We're citizens of heaven, but we live in a sinful and fallen world. We have unredeemed bodies, so we're still capable of sinning. And yet, we have been delivered from the power of sin. James 
chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, as Justin has been taking us through the book of James, warns us that we can expect to be suffer trials of all kinds. Matthew 5 and John 15, Matthew 5, verses 10 and 12, and Matthew, I mean, excuse me, John 15, says we can expect persecution. Paul had given up many of his privileges in his former life, counting them as nothing. Remember, Paul was educated. He studied under Gamaliel, and he was a Pharisee of Pharisee, but he counted that all as garbage. He recognized when he came to Christ, he knew that he was nothing. He was a fallen sinner, and he recognized that he would be a servant of Christ and he would suffer for Christ. So he counted his, everything of his past as nothing. And he was new in Christ. He wanted the brethren here to further the gospel. He didn't want it to be hindered by their grumbling and murmuring amongst the unregenerate people. Jerry Bridges says this in his book, Respectable Sins. <clears throat> Discontentment is one of the sins, for an example, that can easily lead to resentment or bitterness towards God or other people. God does nothing or allows nothing <clears throat> without a purpose. And his purposes, however, are mysterious and unscrutable. They may be to us are always for his glory and ultimate good. However mysterious God's providence is to us, God's purpose in it is for his ultimate good and his glory. Romans 8.28. People use that as a cliche. It's not a cliche. It's God's word. His providence, his sovereign will for us is for his glory. Every circumstance in life is to be accepted willfully and joyfully. And this is what Paul is directing these believers to have an attitude without murmuring or complaint. There should never be either an emotional grumbling or intellectual disputing. What I mean by that, we can murmur without saying a word. I'll give an example of myself. I have uh, a friend who's unregenerate out of the state that I used to work with over 40 years ago. I love this man. I've been praying for this man. I have shared the gospel with this man. Very difficult man. He is belligerent. He is a tough man. He, he's a brawler. And yet, he's a very kind man in many ways for an unregenerate man. Very difficult to get along with, but he, for some reason, I have befriended him and <clears throat> one of the few friends that he has at this time in his life. And he likes to visit us. So I extended the invitation and he took me up on it. Needless to say, we can grumble without saying a word. 
And we can have a poor attitude. I should have an attitude with somebody that I know and have opportunity to share and live out the gospel of joy and happiness. And yet sometimes we can overlook the opportunities that God gives us and murmur in that sin. Now, Paul goes on in <clears throat> verse 15. He says, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And this, so that uh, this is considered a purpose clause. Believers are to quit complaining so that they become the kind of children of God that he wants us to be. He wants us to be blameless and innocent. We are children of God. Now, not by creation, but by regeneration. There's a vast difference. As we consider this, we are in the process of becoming more like Christ. We are in the process of sanctification. God is conforming us to the image of his son. So he is desiring us to grow in Christ's likeness. Blameless is from the root meaning uh, without defect or blame, uh, blemish. We are to seek to be morally pure and without spiritual blemish. Paul speaks of himself as having been found blameless. Now, as far as the righteousness, which is by the law. He says this in Philippians 3.6. Innocent is being unmixed or unadulterated like wine that is unmixed or a pure metal that is not mixed with an alloy. Our life is to be absolutely pure, unmixed with sin and evil. We're also to be above reproach, which is closely related to the word blameless. Both words describe, which are give the description without blemish or imperfection. The word, the word is used in the Septuagint in regard to sacrificial animals, which were without spot or blemish. Paul used the word twice in Ephesians. Be holy and blameless, Ephesians 1.4, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having not spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but she would be holy and blameless. Ephesians 5, verse 27. Like every unblemished, every person that's unblemished, Christ himself is our supreme example. He is a, uh, Jude says this in Jude 24. He's able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. Jude 24. How can that be? I look around and I have to look at myself. 
but it's only in Christ. And it's only by God's Holy Spirit. Back to verse 13. You say, well, really? God's calling us to be blameless? Yes, he is. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't give us this mandate. We're to be blameless in his perfect righteousness. And we need to pursue his perfect righteousness. Another reason that Paul instructed them not to complain was not to have a negative impact on the unregenerate. Now, this friend of mine, he loved to complain. He loves to complain. And I'm, I don't wish to choose to uh, disparage this man because I love this man. But I'm just pointing out he's a complainer. He loves to talk about politics and all the woes. And you can fall into following along and in, I fell right into it. We need to be a witness to the lost. We can join in with them and agree with them. Or we can be set apart. How would we do that practically? Well, I learned to be able to divert the conversation. It was interesting. One day my son-in-law came over. And we were talking about something. And this friend of mine started off on a negative discussion. And... My son-in-law, he kind of shocked us both. He said, you know, it's all going to work out in the end, Whitey. He said, We're, uh, it's in the Lord's hands, and we need to look to God for these things. And I kind of backed up, and, and Whitey looked at me and looked at him, and he goes, yeah. <laughs> okay. It's like a slap in the face, but it was good. We need to be a witness to a crooked and perverse generation. That term, phrase, is from Deuteronomy 32.5, where Moses described an unfaithful and rebellious Israel as a people who had become crooked and perverse. Paul <clears throat> applies that description of Israel to an unsaved, corrupt humanity. Crooked refers to bent or curved or twisted. It's actually a medical term. And uh, it comes from the words scoliosis. It's from an abnormal curvature of the spine. <clears throat> the term metaphorically is used of anything that deviates from the standard or norm and in scripture, it's used of things that are morally and spiritually corrupt. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 2, and I won't read the whole text, but it gives us the same basic idea of a crooked and perverse generation. I'm going to read you a portion of it. Proverbs chapter 2 says this, Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. Cry out for discernment. Lift up your voice for understanding. Seek it as silver and search for her as hidden treasures. 
Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth and comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice. So as we look to the essence of God's wisdom from God's word, we can understand the distinction between a dark and perverse world and the light that God brings us in and through Christ and reflects that in his word. <clears throat> perverse is the same basic idea as crooked, but it takes a more active, stronger form. In Acts 20.30, Paul warned the elders <clears throat> in Ephesus, from among you <clears throat> yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. <clears throat> Perversity and crookedness is the very <clears throat> obvious in today's world, just as it was in Paul's day. It's no different. We live in a fallen world and we're full of unregenerate people and full of darkness. And yet, we're called to be a light. We're to be set apart. We're to be in the world, not of the world. We're to be a true light and a brightness in a dark world. <clears throat> MacArthur says this, but just as right doctrine without right character is hypocritical and ineffective, so is right living ineffective if believers are not proclaiming the gospel truth. In other words, if we are trying to uh, display Christian character and not bring alongside the gospel, we're trying to live the gospel and yet not bring that truth to a lost world, we're missing that element. And we should recognize that we are to be lights in the world of darkness, which is bringing forth the truth of the gospel. And that's what Paul is saying in this passage when he says, a blameless <clears throat> and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you pair as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. What is the word of life? The gospel. <clears throat> God's calling his people to be lights in an unbelieving world. That didn't begin in the New Testament. Daniel said this. Those who have insight will shine brightly like brightness in an expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. Daniel 12, 3. <clears throat> All Christians. For you were once in darkness, but now you are a light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Ephesians 5, 8. <clears throat> Obedient Christians have a huge impact on unbelievers around them. 
we should be able to understand and react in whatever circumstances God allows. Now we've watched over the last week or so the devastation of the floods and the hurricane. And we've seen people uh, on both, from all walks of life, helping people, uh, reaching out to people, rendering first aid to people, rendering food and raiment. And we've also seen looters taking advantage of this devastating time and going in and, and looting and stealing and robbing. And you see the mix of good deeds and evil, and yet it could be all done by unregenerate people. It isn't necessarily Christians. Yes, there is Christian works going in there. Franklin Graham is taking people in to do great works. And yet we see the works of people being done, some good, some evil. And yet we recognize that Christians can be of great effect to a fallen world. They're set apart. <clears throat> the quality of a believer's life, <clears throat> whether faithful and obedient or unfaithful and disobedient, is the basis of our testimony. A grumbling, complaining Christian will not have a positive effect on others. Just the antithesis. Just the opposite. Will be just like the world. So if we join in with the world. And we're murmuring and complaining. They're not going to see light. We blend right in with the world. <clears throat> Paul says holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast is better rendered. Holding forth. We're to hold on to God's truth and share that with others. The word that brings eternal life. The word of life refers to scripture. And the more specifically to the gospel. What was from the beginning. What we have heard. What we have seen with our eyes. What we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was ministered. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you eternal life, which was the Father, was with the Father, and was manifested to us. 1 John 1, 1 and 2. So in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain and toil in vain. So that in the day of Christ, he will have reason to glory. He's anticipated the day of Christ. We look back and rejoice in the faithfulness of the brethren in Philippi. The people who served would be a source of eternal joy. It's important that we understand and note that the day of Christ is not the same as the day of the Lord. Which focuses on punishment of all the unrepentant wicked. The day of Christ is solely for the believers. And we looked at that in Chapter 1, verse 6, and also in verse 10. Although it is <clears throat> a there's a time of judgment in the sense that believers appear before the judgment seat of Christ is also 
uh, a time where Christians will be rewarded for their good deeds in Christ. Paul was looking forward to receiving the joy of the Lord from the promises of every faithful believer. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be complete in you and your joy may be full. John 15, 11. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. <clears throat> it is to be sought and cherished. Paul is speaking specifically of the glory or joy he would experience at the day of Christ. Paul had shared the gospel. He had suffered physically for the sake of the gospel. He was looking forward to the fruit of what God had done through the proclamation of the gospel. He was looking for that at the time of glory, the time when he was glorified and resurrected in Christ. <clears throat> so what are we to do as believers? We're to submit to God's Holy Spirit, allowing him to make us that light in a dark world. We're to be blameless and pure before him and before others. We're to give forth the word of life, the gospel, as God brings opportunity. Then we'll be able to say as Paul did, I did not run or labor in vain. I want to close with this quote from Jeremiah Burroughs. This is a quote from his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. So I may say to a Christian, are you the king's son? Are you the king's daughter of the king of heaven? And yet so disquieted and troubled and vexed at every little thing that happens as if a king's son were to cry out that he is undone for losing a toy. What an unworthy thing this would be. So do you, you cry out as if you were undone and yet are a king's son. You stand in such relationship to God as to a father. You dishonor your father in this. As if either he had not the wisdom or power or mercy enough to provide for you. End quote. A Christian should consider that murmuring and discontentment is below the high dignity which God has placed upon him. Let's close. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your holy word. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have empowered us to do your will and you have empowered us to carry it out in your strength. We ask, Father, that you would give us the ability to both will and to work out our salvation, for it is you who both work in us to do your work for your good pleasure. We ask that we might be able to bring forth the gospel and the light in a dark world by your grace for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.